Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And we're continuing our Art Week, Art History Week. Art History. History. God, yes, thank you. Art History Week. By talking about a group of lady sculptresses, well, I guess that's redundant, lady sculptors or sculptresses, called the White Memorian Flock. They themselves did not pick this name. And honestly, you know, I'm way more familiar with expatriate writers and painters who went to Italy and France in the 19th and early 20th centuries than I am with sculptors. And so when I saw a blog post, uh, this was at the end of 2014, over at the Toast a few months ago by Lindsay Lynch about the white Marmorian flock, I really had no idea, no idea what she was talking about. But it turns out it's this amazing group of women who definitely deserve our attention, especially during Art History Week. Um, and especially because men of their time, their contemporaries, dismissed them completely. Right off the bat. Yeah. And while we could have done an episode just focusing on women in sculpture in general, and perhaps we'll circle back to that, we really wanted to spend time focused on this particular group of women because it's such an incredible snapshot of not only art at a time, but also women's position in society, what what it kind of took to be ambitious. And for these women, it took leaving the United States and going to Italy. So first off, Caroline, let's just answer the question of what was this white Marmorian flock? And should we point out what Marmorian means? Because <laughs> here's the thing. I'm going to be really honest with our listeners for a moment, even though this is embarrassing. The entire time I was researching this up until this morning, <laughs> I was reading it as Mamorian and just assuming like, oh, white Mamorian mammaries. They were talking about them having breasts. <laughs> no, no, totally wrong word. Well, we're going to get into the full story of where this name came from. So don't worry. But basically, Mamorian means like like marble, of marble, it makes made so, of marble. And, and once I read that definition, it made so much sense. Yeah, so this was a name that was given to a specific group of 19th century American expatriate ladies working in the neoclassical style in Italy. Mostly Florence, a little bit Rome. Um, but don't, yeah, don't get too excited about how unique and different the name is because it was totally meant as a dismissive uh, moniker. So first, let's provide a little bit of general sculpture context. This is coming from the Met that talks about how America's first acknowledged school of professional sculptors, as they describe it, got their start in Italy. And this is really starting in the late 1820s and lasting throughout the 19th century. This pattern of aspiring sculptors heading to Italy, like you said, mostly in Florence and Rome, because... There were tons of marble quarries. There are lots of skilled and affordable craftsmen and carvers, as well as leading European sculptor mentors and models who would pose nude. I mean, and they were also going back to the birthplace of this neoclassical art. 
Right, yeah, and being the birthplace of this classical Greek art that they were looking at, there was plenty of Renaissance art, contemporary art all around them that could help provide inspiration and ideas for what they themselves wanted to do. But by the mid-1870s, the popularity of this particular American neoclassical sculpture movement had started to wane, but that doesn't mean that you know they just gave up and came home. There were definitely a huge number of artists still in Italy, but We are talking about those sculptresses specifically today. Yeah, that first quote-unquote school of women sculptors arose around this woman, Harriet Goodhue Hosmer, and they took advantage of the same great art and sculpture environment in Italy. And it's also worth noting, too, that these women couldn't just you know, trot down to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and gaze at some sculptures to get inspiration because those museums didn't exist before the 19th century. So they were like, well, we got to pack up and make it to Italy somehow and follow in the footsteps of Harriet. Right. And some of these women include Edmonia Lewis, Emma Stebbins, Louise Lander, Anne Whitney, Margaret Foley, Florence Freeman, and Vinnie Ream. And while, of course, there were more women, both in sculpture and painting, uh, these are some of the big names that come up again and again when you talk about this specific group of women. And why they're neat, and this is pointed out by Lindsay Lynch over in her post at The Toast, she wrote, In an age where taking up drawing was considered an admirable means to charm your way into marriage, these women ran off to Rome and created big-ass sculptures with their hands, a chisel, and a literal ton of marble. Yeah, and then Matt also points out that they, quote, broke new ground through their independent lifestyles and an emphasis on career over marriage and motherhood. And so since we don't have time in this podcast to discuss in detail every single one of those artists that you just mentioned, Caroline, we're going to really focus on three of those names, Harriet Hosmer, Edmonia Lewis, and Vinnie Ream. And to kick things off, we got to talk about Harriet because out of all of these women, she was the most accomplished and the most famous at the time. Yeah. So Harriet arrives in Italy in 1852 and three years later, she travels to Rome to study with English sculptor John Gibson. And she really became one of the most important American neoclassical sculptors, period, not just a woman sculptor. And she was central to this whole white memorian flock that a misogynist author uh, would talk about later. And we'll get to we'll get to that guy later. But, you know, she sounds pretty freaking cool, at least according to a letter that Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote in 1854. She said, I should mention too, Miss Hosmer, the young American sculptress who is a great pet of mine and Robert's and who emancipates the eccentric life of a perfectly, quote, emancipated female from all shadow of blame by the purity of hers. She lives here all alone at 22, dines and breakfasts at the cafes precisely as a young man would, works from six o'clock in the morning till night as a great artist must, and this with an absence of pretension and simplicity of manners which accord rather with the childish dimples in her rosy cheeks than with her broad forehead and high aims. So, I mean, I love hearing that, that she was such a great character that people considered her dedicated to her art, despite or because of her gender. It didn't matter. She was in there doing what she wanted to do. Yeah, there is this one photograph of her standing next to, she's up on a platform, standing next to this massive 
larger than life sculpture that she's working on. And she's so tiny Mm -hmm. next to it. And of course, she's wearing, you know, traditional 19th century women's dress. She's in a dress and with her hair all done up and everything. But there she is just standing next to this massive sculpture, which... Note, she did not sculpt that giant thing by hand. That's where these Italian uh, craftsmen would come in. She would make the model, and this was what all the sculptors would be doing. You make the model, and then you hand it off to a massive team who would then do the do the work of do the big work. Yeah, of chiseling it out. Well, some of this work that she did featured, and a lot of it featured, heroic women whose suffering then renders them sympathetic. So one of her most famous is the figure of Zenobia, who's a third century queen captured by the Romans. And she sculpts Zenobia as this proud, calm, steady, silent woman who's walking in chains, but she's still majestic and proud despite her surrender. Yeah, and then if we look at this bust of Medusa, who is a a familiar figure to us from mythology. She was a great beauty, then turned into a monster by a jealous goddess and thus gets the crown of snakes. And she's sculpted, though, as this calm, beautiful woman who just kind of happens to have a nest of snakes hanging out on her head. And in a post over at the Hood Museum where this, uh, this bust is housed, they talk about how... There is this neoclassical restraint in the piece, as is common for that kind of artwork at the time, but also an uncommon emotionality and expressiveness in this bust um, through her parted lips and also the pose of her head. And they suggest that she's beautiful but hideous at the same time because of the snakes. And perhaps this was Hosmer's commentary on perceptions toward women at the time of that double bind between the beautiful and what would be deemed hideous. And you could see that, too, with Zenobia and chains. Hello. (laughs) I mean, women still didn't have the boat. Talk about some chains. Well, that's right. And, I mean, entire papers have been written about our next statue, which is Beatrice Sensi. Um, and this was a 16th century woman condemned to death for killing the father who had raped her. Um... And just the fact that uh, she is sculpted as this peaceful prisoner. She's asleep on her prison bench holding beads. I think it's a rosary. Uh, she's about to be put to death for this horrible crime. And just sort of that duality of extreme violence and pain with this peaceful image of a woman who she's it's almost like she's done the right thing and she knows she's done the right thing. She did what she had to do, but she's going to be put to death for it. Yeah. If you were to see this sculpture out of context, like not knowing the backstory, you would have no idea the kind of violence in the background that's going on. And she was a feminist, not surprisingly, who did support the suffragist cause. And people around her often noted her, quote, unconventional behavior, not just the fact that she was such a prestigious sculptor at the time, but she also, I mean, the very fact that, for instance, Beatrice Sensi was done on commission and she was making money, actively seeking out patrons to make money for her work 
was considered, I mean, rather unladylike. But this was a woman who was also raised by her father. Her mother and I think her sister or other siblings had died. So she was raised by her father to be super active and outdoorsy. He had her climbing trees. He had her riding horses and learning how to be sort of a person outside of the house. And so a lot of people commented on that. British artist Frederick Layton said, Hosmer is the queerest, best-natured little chap possible. And echoing that, feminist Bessie Rayner Park said she's the funniest little creature, not at all coarse, rough, or slangy, but like a little boy. And that's what you see over and over again. People who talk about Hosmer essentially call her like a, a little chap. She's she's like a guy. She's like a little boy, a, a, a jokey little you know tomboy running around, making art, riding horses, enjoying the outdoors. Becoming one of the best American neoclassical sculptors of the time. No big deal. No big deal. But, you know, people also hone in on her sexuality, too. This was a woman who was able to, once she moved over to Florence and Rome, live more openly. And a lot of her letters of the time reflect that. And she uh, referred to uh, one of her romantic partners as her wife, and she called herself another romantic partner's hubby. You know, I think this was something that a lot of the women and men, too, who went to Europe during this time experienced. It was more of an open lifestyle. You were away from that oppressive feeling in America. Well, next, we're going to talk about Edmonia Lewis, um, whose birth name significantly was Wildfire. Um, And there's not a ton of scholarship out there about her, but she's a really important figure because She's often cited as the first professional African-American female sculptor who also ended up heading over to Italy where her work flourished. Yeah, and it is important to mention her because even though there isn't a ton of stuff out there about her life, you know, and her early years and her later years are sort of in obscurity. This whole white Marmorian flock was definitely not literally white. She was a a major part of this movement. And she is both of African and Native American descent, something that really played into her sculpture as well. And so Lewis studied at Oberlin, thanks to financial support from her brother, and trained to be a teacher. And her brother was really encouraging of her education. He basically said, this is how you're going to live a life that isn't basically in a shack. You are going to make something of yourself. But during her time at Oberlin, she was actually accused of poisoning two of her classmates. And this fact of her life almost is as well known as her sculpture, unfortunately. And she was captured and beaten by a white mob, but the charges against her were eventually dropped. And it's after this point that she moves to Boston and encounters the abolitionist community. Yeah, and it's there that she befriends sculptor Edward Brackett, who ends up becoming her teacher. And she starts earning some small commercial success thanks to busts of people like William Lloyd Garrison, notable abolitionists of the time, as well as John Brown. But there's kind of an icky side to this as well, because abolitionists, for all of their great intentions, obviously, still used her as an example of what African Americans could be capable of if given the chance. And this earned Lewis national and international press coverage. So, yeah, so it's it's great that she got so much attention, but it is kind of, you're right, gross that she was used, she was propped up as this example of what black people in America should be or could be. Kind of an exception to the rule sort right. of thing. Exactly. Well, so after this, she goes on to earn her first major commercial ex- success thanks to a bust of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. 
After this point, she's able to move to Italy. She's earned enough money. And in Rome, she encounters other female artists and she gets to enjoy more social and artistic freedom. She could fully participate in the international market for sculpture and not just rely on abolitionist patronage. Because like you said, abolitionist community in Boston, great intentions, want to, you know, free African-Americans of the bonds of slavery. But she was still kind of under their thumb if they were the ones giving her all of the the commission. And so in Italy, she could kind of make her own way. And in 1867, she creates her most famous work, Forever Free, which is a sculpture of a black man and woman leaving the bonds of slavery. And nine years later, she she shows her last major work, which is the death of Cleopatra at the Philadelphia Exposition. Yeah, and apparently, I mean, the significance of both of those pieces is... uh, Worth mentioning, too, because Forever Free was sculpted to commemorate the ratification of the 13th Amendment. So clearly there's a lot of personal investment in that piece. But then when it comes to the death of Cleopatra, which depicts Cleopatra sitting on her throne, um, that was really her effort to secure her place as a significant artist to prove that she was as good as all of the rest. Yeah. And she did, because she's definitely someone noteworthy in this entire group of women, as is Vinnie Ream, who studied with sculptor Clark Mills in Washington, D.C., Luigi Majoli in Rome, and Leon Bonat in Paris. So- Luigi? She studied with Luigi? Oh, with Luigi. Um, not Mario. Uh, but in 1866, at just 18 years old, Old Vinny here was picked by Congress to sculpt a statue of Abraham Lincoln. The significance being that she became the first female artist commissioned to create a work of art for the federal government. And she carves it in Rome out of Carrera marble. And it's unveiled in D.C. in 1871. And it's gorgeous. You can you can see it on the Google (laughs) if you'd like to. And there's this quote by then New York legislator James Brooks on the Lincoln statue, which starts off so glowing and then takes a turn that sums (laughs) up one of the main reasons we even wanted to do this specific episode. So Brooks says, The Parthenon, the Vatican, the great museums of Paris, Berlin, and London show us no marble monuments, busts, nor statues, the finger work of the fairer sex. While here, in this rotunda, we now see the equal rights of women are not at the ballot box, but in the pencil, the chisel, the artistic instruments to perpetuate the human form divine. Oh, you were so close, James Brooke. You you had me you had me until until not. <laughs> until not. Yeah, I'm I'm not a sexist person, but But you're really better at making sandwiches than decisions. Oh. Well, at least she can make pretty things, which is basically his attitude. Well, he was at least kinder in his view of women's artistic capability than a lot of his male contemporaries who were like, oof. I mean, they're kind of posers. <laughs> well, I mean, even Vinny's husband wasn't so great. Yeah. So there's this, it's not that she wasn't working during this time, but there's a 40 year, 40 year, four decade gap between the Lincoln unveiling and the completion of a statue of Iowa Governor Samuel Jordan Kirkwood. In the, in the meantime, she'd been focusing on her life as a wife and a mother. And that's fine. Great. Hooray. Wife and mother. 
However, that's because her husband, Lieutenant Richard Hoxie, imposed restrictions on her sculpting. Oh, Hoxie. Oh, oh, Hoxie. Why you got to be like that? Uh, Well, now that we've spotlighted these three important women, we want to kind of go back now and talk about how this supposed flock came to be associated together and how that fits into the the broader culture regarding women and artistic ambition at the time. Okay, so we named some names for you. We talked a little bit about the history behind women traveling to Europe to become artists, sculptors in particular. And now we want to talk about how these women even came together. I mean, obviously, they're individuals. Obviously, this was not like a sculpting sorority. You know, they had different interests and paths in life. But they also had a lot in common in terms of what drew them to Italy and what kept them there. And this is coming from a paper by Sarah Foose Parrott called Networking in Italy, Charlotte Cushman and the White Marmorian Flock. And so Charlotte Cushman was one of America's first big name actresses, if not the first American big name actress. And she attracted a ton of female artists, not just sculptors, writers and painters, too, to Italy in the 1850s through the 1870s. So in 1852, Cushman first travels to Rome with Harriet Hosmer. And she ended up connecting Hosmer with potential patrons and helped her out of a bunch of money trouble. The awkward part being that Cushman's romantic partner would temporarily leave her for Hosmer in 1854. But romantic things aside, Cushman had a lot to do with with helping and supporting a lot of the sculptors and artists around her. Yeah, she flexed her muscle constantly to advocate on behalf of Sculptress and partner Emma Stebbins, for instance. And so we have her to thank for the Bethesda Fountain in New York Central Park that Stebbins sculpted. And she also kept in touch with sculptor Florence Freeman's dubious mother via letters to ease her mind about Freeman uh, being in Italy. And she also organized a group purchase of one of Edmonia Lewis's sculptures to help keep her working. And when I was reading about Charlotte Cushman and her hardcore advocacy for women supporting women specifically. I thought about our Shine Theory podcast. I thought about Lean In. I mean, this was really, she was kind of the original Sheryl Sandberg with this old school Lean In group just being really focused, singularly focused on promoting other female artists work and pulling strings abroad to wealthy patrons saying, hey, you, okay, listen, I'm Charlotte Cushman. I'm a really big deal. I know this sculptor. You should buy one of her pieces to put in your mansion. Why don't you do it? And they'd be like, oh, that's a wonderful idea. You're Charlotte Cushman. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, she's she's like lean in with a little bit of romantic drama in there as well yeah. from time to time. She was also kind of in love with a lot of these women. <laughs> also, also, they just kind of came and went, too, to some degree. I mean, yeah. Charlotte Cushman was, I mean, she was in a pretty, a pretty plum position, it seemed like, she, at the time. She was. Well, you know, what Parrot points out is that Cushman was evidenced that ambitious, artistic women didn't have to sacrifice happiness and fulfillment in the domestic sphere in favor of a career. And, you know, Charlotte Cushman is this masculine figure who'd never married, and she maintained a quote-unquote cherished celibacy, wink-wink, nudge-nudge. But so instead of having to sacrifice one for the other, she says, you know, we should band together. And and she encouraged them to do this so that they could take on tasks for one another that were traditionally delegated 
two men to do. So, hey, if you are out working all night, I'll cook dinner for all of us. Or if you're doing this, I'll help, you know, purchase supplies. And this really was not an unusual setup, romantic relationships or not. Uh, this is something that Vivian Green Fried, a Vanderbilt art history professor, wrote about um, in looking at the relationships of these women. She said 19th century white middle class women often form their own gendered communities out of necessity in a world comprising discrete male and female spheres, composing a closed and intimate female world in which a young girl like Hosmer grew toward womanhood under the tutelage of an older woman like Cushman. But what was so interesting to me, too, about Cushman was that I would have assumed that she would have been this threatening figure to socialites at the time because she was living such kind of a transgressive kind of life. But it was just the opposite. She was so beloved for the fact that she legitimated a lot of uh, American theatrical work at the time by becoming that first big name stage actress because previously only British theater was considered true theater. And the Chicago Times at one point described her as an ambassadress for America living abroad, showing Italians, all these fancy people, because back then, of course, European culture was considered the culture. And so they were like, oh, well, it's great that we have Cushman over here you know, kind of repping us right. to show that, hey, Americans, <laughs> we aren't so bad. No, I thought the exact same thing when I was reading that paper about Cushman. I was just waiting for the whole thing of like, and everybody in America hated her, too, because she lived an alternative lifestyle. But, yeah, it was exactly the opposite. People were so excited that we had women like Cushman and Harriet Hosmer kind of, yeah, like you said, repping for us that to show that, hey, we have culture, too. We can we can um, provide uh, high quality entertainment, art, and culture, um, we don't just have to rely on people from other countries to bring it to us. But at the same time, women in America had to rely on going to another country, specifically Italy at the time, in order to pursue their artistic ambitions. And I was so pleased to learn that the character Amy in Louisa May Alcott's Little Women was based on her sister, Mary, who pulled a Memorian flock. She went to study art in Italy because of this whole trend that was happening. And it mm-hmm. makes sense. Little Women came out in 1868. So, I mean, if, if you weren't familiar with this, you actually might have been if you read Little Women. Well, I mean, but speaking of literature and characters in literature, one character does play a large part in this. Because you have to keep in mind that, you know, traveling to Italy wasn't something that just anybody and everybody got to do. And you would often rely on literature to kind of tell you what was going on. And, and novels were even used as sort of guidebooks because once the upper crust read a, a particularly colorful novel about Italy or France or whatever, they would basically follow that character's footsteps through the town. And so Cushman's contemporaries actually associated her with this character named Corinne from the 1807 book Corinne or Italy. And in the book, the Italian Corinne creates all of this amazing art through divine intervention, which is interesting. And she ends up being crowned as the best that Italian civilization has to offer. So sort of a Cushman but in the art world. Um, but she ultimately suffers for her success because, you know, she like flew too close to the sun as a lady person. 
Cushman didn't. She was super successful. She was very smart with her money and where she spent it. And she was able to free a lot of the other women who followed her to Italy to pursue their own interests. And because there was a lot of American investment and interest in proving our cultural worth at the time, women traveling to Italy was acceptable. It was like, okay, well, if you're going to do that, if you're going to represent us well, I guess go and make your art if you must, little woman. And in that paper, Parrot writes, the very fact that many American women were pursuing careers in Italy was interpreted by their contemporaries as an indication of the expansiveness and vigor of American culture. So not only was it okay, it was encouraged. And it was also, too, though, as Parrot goes on to talk about, indicative of the inadequacy of artistic training available in the U.S. But this was really, this was an interesting twist to all of it. We still believed that the character of American womanhood was superior to any other. So there was kind of this our girls versus their girls thing going on between America and Italy where we were like, okay, you guys have all of this cultural superiority, yes, but we have superior women. So if we send them over and then we combine the two, <laughs> we win big time. Yeah, it's a little bit of like rock'em sock'em art world edition. Well, but so what's up with this moniker? You know, we've we've been talking about the Marmorian flock. We touched on what Marmorian means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean boobs. <laughs> it I doesn't. learned it today. I'm sure boobs are part of it. The part of why they were getting hated on. But the, the moniker is definitely evidence of the way these women were collectively across the board dismissed by a lot of their contemporaries. And it starts with Scarlet Letter author Nathaniel Hawthorne. So Hawthorne goes over to Italy with his wife, who herself is a painter. And based on his experiences there, he writes the novel A Marble Fawn in 1859. And that's based on his encounters with people, including Hosmer, Lander, and fellow sculptor William Wetmore Story, who sounds like a wet blanket to play off of his middle name. But it's this romanticized view of Americans seeking artistic training abroad. And the plot involves female characters living outside of social norms. Gasp. But he based his innocent character, Hilda, on Hosmer, interestingly, and the male protagonist, Kenyon, on story. And these characters in the book fall in love eventually. But in real life, that was not so much the case. Yeah, A, because Hosmer was likely a lesbian. Right. (laughs) And B, story in real life pretty much dismissed her. But it's kind of clear in the way that he does this that he's just completely intimidated by her talent. So at one point he writes, Miss Hosmer is also, to say the word, very willful and too independent by half, and is mixed up with a set whom I do not like, and I can therefore do very little for her. And he goes on to say she may or may not have inventive powers as an artist, but if she have, will not she be the first woman? (laughs) I wanted to throw my laptop out a window when I read that. I know, what a jerk. Would she not be the first woman? Ooh, story, fighting words. But yeah, he describes Hosmer as one of the emancipated females who dwell there in heavenly unity. Which sounds amazing, P.S. Well, seriously, and continuing that theme, he wrote that she would have the Romans know that a Yankee girl can do anything she pleases, walk alone, ride her horse alone, and laugh at their rules. Again, sounds amazing. Yeah, so she can walk? (laughs) 
That's, and ride a horse. That's so great. By herself. By herself. And but not even side saddle. Not only is there that tone of insecurity, but there's also a little bit of tone of like, I'm trying to save her from these lesbians and she just will not come away with me. Um, but author John Carlos Rowe, writing about this relationship between Hawthorne, Hosmer, and author Henry James, says, William's stories patronizing judgment of Hosmer betrays his own fears that Hosmer's artistic achievement and talent might be superior to his own, as most modern art historians agree they were. Now, speaking of the, the marble font, we mentioned the two, the two of the main characters, Hilda and Kenyon, but there is also another female protagonist, Miriam, who is a little bit of a, a mysterious figure. And she is based on real-life woman, Margaret Fuller, who was an early American feminist, part of the Transcendental Movement, also the first female American foreign correspondent, who also, while she was in Italy, got pregnant, ended up marrying the guy, and then on their way back to the U.S., died in a shipwreck. And her death at the time was seen as proof of the rash decision it would be for a woman to pursue her artistic ambition. She was a cautionary tale, that Miriam. She was. Well, I mean, but it's hard to believe that Margaret Fuller's even real because her story just reads like it's straight out of a novel from this period, which is why she was her life was such fodder for Hawthorne. I mean, here's a woman who essentially lived her life as what we would think of as a spinster, goes to Italy, meets this younger guy who's like got nothing going for him. I mean, how many of these people did we date in college? Like, he's got nothing going for him, but she's just like, you're hot. Like, I haven't been hanging out with dudes for a while, so like, let's do this. They do it. Gets pregnant, gets in a shipwreck, all is lost. Becomes the cautionary tale. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm, people of that era, I'm sure they were like, mm hmm. Which I'm sure would enrage her if she knew that. Oh, I'm sure. But, but so anyway, in this book that was, was swirling around all of these, um, sculptors and sculptresses, Hawthorne used the term marmorian to mean, you know, resembling marble, as in smoothness or hardness. But, That term is then taken by Henry James and applied to this group of lady sculptors. And he definitely, you guys, meant it to be dismissive. After all, he included the reference in his book about William Wetmore's story, who, as we've already established, was none too fond of these women, including Hosmer. And after all, she is the only lady sculptor that James mentions in his book by name. Yeah, so the whole White Memorian flock thing comes from this passage in Henry James's book that goes like this. Stories Hattie is, of course, Miss Harriet Hosmer, the most eminent member of that strange sisterhood of American lady sculptors who at one time settled upon the seven hills in a White Memorian flock. Their rise, their prosperity, their subsistence are, in presence of some of the widely scattered monuments of their reign, things likely to lead us into bypaths, queer and crooked. So just all sorts of like really awesome things to say about women. But yeah, he's he's dismissing these women as birds. Yeah. Like they're just they're just white, cold lesbian birds that I hate and resent. And he also mentions Admonia Lewis, though not by name, when he writes, One of the sisterhood, if I'm not mistaken, was a negress whose color, picturesquely contrasting with that of her plastic material, was the pleading agent of her fame. 
<sighs> yeah, and if you keep in mind that Henry James, you know, was not too fond of women in general who weren't inside the home. I mean, in other books of his, he drew these unspoken parallels between female copyists, the women who would, for instance, go to museums or galleries and paint what they saw, and prostitutes. Good grief. I know. Good grief. So so Hawthorne and James obviously did not hold these women in terribly high esteem, although I would be willing to guess that Hawthorne was like a little more okay with them. I would hope so, considering <laughs> that his wife, Sophia, was a an artist. Although once they got married, she, for the most part, kind of had to pack away her canvases. Yeah, I've got to love that stuff. Well, but so what was the what was the general consensus about these ladies? Well, like you said, that they were one monolithic group. They were kind of lumped together rather than being seen as individuals with individual talent. And a lot of the articles also focused on personalities, appearance, mm-hmm. and a lot of articles also focused on personalities, appearances, behaviors rather than their work, which is something that we still see so often today in profiles of accomplished women. Yeah, big time. How many magazine articles have you read about a woman that starts off describing what she's wearing and what she's eating? Oh, so many. Especially if, if she is really attractive, conventionally attractive and thin, it'll start off with what she's eating. Oh, yeah. If she's not as conventionally attractive, probably what she's wearing. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Um, well, so in 1866, freelance correspondent Henry Rufford, reporting back on this Marmorian flock, departs from the bird reference and describes them as a fair constellation of 12 stars of greater or lesser magnitude who shed their soft and humanizing influence on a profession which has done so much for the refinement and civilization of man. I mean, that doesn't sound so uh, condescending, but it is still, I mean, it's limited, obviously. They're, they're this discrete constellation of 12 stars, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, why why go in go into it any further? And we could also say that about American writer and art critic Henry Tuckerman, who in his six hundred page volume about art dedicated just five pages to all of these American female sculptors. His take that the public appreciation of their art seemed to come from quote national deference to and sympathy with the sex and from, quote, a lack of understanding about art in general. So basically, if you appear to appreciate any of the sculptures that are being created by these women, you are probably just feeling a little bad for them because they're women and how nice for them that they're struggling. Or you just don't get art. And I, I want to give him just a tiny pass because the, <laughs> his 600 page volume was coming out in 1867. But <laughs> still, Tuckerman. Uh, pretty, and he was also too living in Italy, so he was right in the midst of this, and still thumbed his nose at these transgressive women, as they were often considered by the wealthy travelers, who would go through these Italian routes to see all of these studios um, and the other sites abroad, who would always want to look into these Marmorian flock studios to see, like, well, what does it even look like for a woman to be working like this? Yeah, because, you know, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the novels of the era were used almost as travel guides, and this is also true for uh, Hawthorne's The Marble Fawn, that he described so intricately all of these different sites and artworks and people in his book that when 
uh, American tourists would come to Italy, they would either have in hand or purchase a copy of his book that had places where you could insert postcards and pictures when you went to the exact same spot. Oh, my God. It's like the Eat, Pray, Love tour. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is. And, you know... By and large, the medium in general was considered inappropriate for women of this time. Like painting and sketching, that's totally cool. Except if you're Henry James and you think that women who sketch in the museum are prostitutes. But um, it's essentially the fact that they're using these difficult and dirty materials and they have to exert themselves to manipulate the stone um, that they they ended up inhabiting this essentially masculine realm. And this made a lot of the contemporaries, the artist contemporaries, uneasy. Yeah, there was a lot of scandal, actually, that broke out, for instance, around Hosmer's Zenobia sculpture, because it received all of this critical acclaim. But then there was this backlash among some people who said, well, she has all of these these Italian workmen who are doing the chiseling for her which was the case for male sculptors at the time as well. There was a lot of resistance just yeah. to even even allowing women to succeed in this field. Right, exactly. Because after all, you know, you mentioned the commission thing earlier. It was totally unfeminine for women to try to pursue a commission. Um, but the artists did, a lot of them did work to counter this whole negative perception by portraying themselves as that whole ambassador to Europe thing. Like, ambassadoress? Yes, the ambassadoress. Like, no, 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 we're not, we're not trying to further our own careers. We're just trying to be ambassadors to America. We're women. We're communal minded. Um, and, and we too have to mention that there was probably some latent homophobia going on as well because a lot of these women were living in I mean, kind of lesbian arrangements. The, the euphemism for it at the time was a Boston marriage, mm-hmm. which was really exemplified by Anne Whitney, who was a sculptor at the time. She was older and not as successful as a Harriet Hosmer, for instance. But she and her partner, Adeline Manning, lived in a quote unquote Boston marriage for decades. And when Manning died, or I guess after, okay, so Manning died first. Then Whitney died, and they wanted to be, they were supposed to be buried next to each other as well, and kind of had to fight for that. Well, Manning's family ended up, yeah, making sure that that happened, that they were buried together. They were partners. Well, yeah, and so, I mean, not only were these women living outside the normal bounds of matrimony and motherhood, but they were also pursuing careers and living in these situations with other women, which, yeah, sometimes they were so-called Boston marriages and sometimes they were all just living together to do what Cushman envisioned and sort of support one another. And, you know, the reports that came back of these women living together in a spinster-like fashion were always okay. It's always okay if they're just older women who never married and they're spinsters and that's fine. Even those romantic friendships that we've talked before, especially in our episode on women's colleges, like that was still okay. But once you were actually referring to another woman as your wife or saying that you were her hubby in Hosmer's case and actually displaying any public displays of affection or actual sexual desires, that was not okay. And so this group was just sort of a a microcosm of everything that made people so uncomfortable at the time, especially with women. But I do think that we women today have a lot that we can learn from this group of artists that I don't feel like we can call a white memorial flock because it was a dismissive term for them at the time. Because, I mean, they really dug their heels in and got so into 
the concept of the importance of networking, supporting each other, not allowing jealousy to get in the way of each other's ambition and career achievements. It's really inspirational in a lot of ways. It is inspirational. And I'd love to sculpt something, but I just never took that class. Caroline, you still can. (laughs) Get it too late. Get a ticket to Italy, pick up a copy of the marble phone and go. I know I need to. I'll be your patron. Oh, oh, thanks. I have no money, but Uh, I'll be your spiritual uh, patron. uh, Thanks. Well, we are really curious to hear from listeners about this. I'm wondering if there are any sort of expat artistic types listening to this podcast right now in a faraway place. I know we have some some traveling listeners, because um, I know that this was also inspirational for me in terms of the importance of getting outside of your own backyard every now mm-hmm. and then and how and how invigorating that can be creatively as well. So let us know your thoughts about sculpture, women, art, ambition and kind of the conflict that poses sometimes to women's roles in quotes. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. I have a letter here from Katie about our slut-shaming episode. She says, while I don't have a grand scheme to rid our culture of slut-shaming, I do have an anecdote that y'all might find interesting. When Rush Limbaugh made his infamous slut comments about Sandra Fluke and birth control, I happened to be a recent college grad working in the D.C. office of a female Republican senator, and I was one of the three people who answered most of the phone calls. After the Sandra Fluke comments, we received some of the most hate-filled, verbally abusive phone calls I have ever heard. People called in from all over the country to call us the senator's whores, sluts, and a thousand other things that I'd rather not relay. While it was office policy that we could hang up on any verbally abusive caller, after eight hours of hundreds of abusive calls, and they were pretty much constant for days after those comments, we were all pretty shell-shocked. Even now, three years later, it's one of the worst working weeks I've ever had. No one in our office supported Rush Limbaugh's comments, including the senator, but so much ire was taken out on us. Now, I realize that the people who work in the offices of senators and other elected officials are there to facilitate communication between the official and constituents, but my advice or plea for anyone who chooses to call on an issue is please, please, please remember that the person on the other end of the phone is a person. They're an actual human being. This is broader than the reactionary slut-shaming or verbally abusive calls we got on that one issue, but it's something that played out over and over again in my time there. A really good rule of thumb is to ask yourself, would I talk like this if I was looking at this person's face? Most of the time, the shouty, sweary name-calling would never happen in person. A phone call shouldn't be any different, and I'm pretty sure this holds for YouTube comments, too. Anyway, that's my little soapbox moment. For the record, I'd rather not reclaim the word slut. I'd just prefer that we stop using it altogether. So thank you, Katie. Yeah, we've heard so much about uh, the slut-shaming episode and still are getting letters about it. And same thing with the podcast Stalking 101. And I've got a letter here from someone I'm going to keep anonymous to protect her privacy who writes, I was the victim of a stalker. He was my ex-boyfriend. This was pretty soon after our breakup. I really didn't know who was stalking me. I would receive daily threatening emails and one night came home to a rock through the window. I was rooming with my best friend who owned the house and I spoke to the police and he told me it was probably my ex 
And somehow I got connected to a wonderful detective who worked to find the address these emails were coming from, and he eventually traced them back to my ex. I told my family in my workplace. My family blamed me for introducing this man into my life. Every day I felt guilt, shame, and overall disbelief that I had gotten myself in this situation. And every day my family reminded me that you should have known better, and I couldn't take it. For a month, I slept on a couch at my friend's house. We weren't close because most of my close friends didn't even want to risk their own safety by having me there. At work, my boss wanted me fired. She said I could no longer perform my work duties due to the fear I had of my stalker. Oh, yeah, and according to her, I was putting everyone at risk. Luckily, her director let me work from another office. I went on and got a temporary restraining order. The police were never able to find him and give it to him. When I went to my permanent hearing, he wasn't there, and the court said they could go no further. Once he knew I contacted the police, he never bothered me again, only left me a bag at work with pictures and a letter saying he was moving away. I know I did the right thing contacting the police, and I'm grateful to the officer that helped me. I'm forever grateful to my friend who gave me his couch and only listened. But it's still a challenge dealing with the shame I feel about the whole event. Now only a few close friends know what happened. The event also changed my relationship with my family. I share it with no one and often wonder if I pop up somewhere as having filed a restraining order. I'm also grateful to the few people who didn't judge me and just supported me. Hopefully, I can be that person to someone else. So I wanted to share that story because we've heard a lot of things like this, just to emphasize like what really happens in these kinds of situations. And if you have a friend or a family member, or even an acquaintance who's going through this, have some kindness and compassion. So with that, send us your emails. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, with links to more fascinating sources about these lady sculptresses, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 